Let us pray. O God, who didst lay the foundation of man's being in wonder and honor, and in greater wonder and honor didst renew the same, granted by thy holy incarnation that he was partaker of our humanity, may make us joint heirs of his very Godhead, even Jesus Christ our Lord, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost liveth and reigneth ever one God, world without end. Amen. By the way, you know, it's one of the, we've mentioned this a couple of times in our discussions, but it's one of the aspects of Orthodox spirituality that <clears throat> we need to let what we learn germinate, uh, and we need to be patient with that process of germination. Uh, and one will be surprised at where what one learns just by letting it simmer inside. Uh, and to give you an example, I, all the times that I've taught many times just out of nowhere, phrases and sentences come to me, and I'm astounded that where did that come from? Now, you could argue with the Holy Spirit gave it to you, but I don't think I'm that pious that I'm that open to the Holy Spirit, so it's got to be something else uh, that's operating in spite of me. Uh, and it's interesting, I, in another thing about doing this is you read and reread, so one doesn't just read a book on the spiritual life and he's got it down. It's like one doesn't read the Bible once and he's got it down. It's living and active. So you keep reading it and keep reading it. So I reread all of a select group of books I have in the spiritual life. Uh, and frequently as I'm reading, and some of these books I've been reading for 30 years, rereading re them for 30 years, an entire sentence or phrase will jump out at me that I've used, one of those ones that caught me off guard about where did that come from? Well, it came out of that reading and rereading and letting it germinate. Uh, and I'm, I'm rereading uh, Vladimir Lasky's book, Orthodox Theology and Introduction. Uh, I've read it five or six times and it was the first, my first exposure to Orthodox theology. And he's filled with these sentences that I read 30 years ago when I was an Episcopalian <laughs> trying to find something meaningful. Uh, and <laughs> Here I am reading it and all of a sudden, oh, that's what he said years ago. And I've been using those lines ever since and didn't even know it. So let it germinate. There's more to that, but that's, that's in a class of its own, isn't it? It just grows on us and grows into us. I'm going to start with a quote from Metropolitan Horatius Vlakos, who's written a book called The Mind of the Orthodox Church. He says, secularism is our life's estrangement from God, our not seeking communion and unity with him, our attachment to the mundane and looking at everything and the issues in our life away from God's will. It could be said that secularism is a synonym for anthropocentrism. That is man at the center of all things. Well, today I wanna to talk about reunited with God, the incarnation. And remember, just as a recap, and Father Mark touched on some of this today, so forgive the redundancy, but in the beginning was paradise, and it involved for humanity a relationship with God, a very intimate relationship with God. Uh, and that relationship affected so much of who we are and what we do and what we understand, even about ourselves. And then the fall occurred in which Man separated himself from God. And basically for us, the fall is all focused on separation from the divine life. 
See, for other Christians, many other Christians, most, the fall is about violating God's justice, that we committed sins and God is hacked off and somebody's got to pay. And so he's got to have a victim to pay. And who is a worthy victim to pay? That's called God's justice. Well, we believe in God's justice, but what we focus it on is that the real essence of the fall is separation from God. It's separation. We're cut off and we have to be restored. And that's what the incarnation is all about. You know, people ask the question, how can a good God, you know, when we see all the trials and tribulations and all things wrong with society and the world around us, and believe me, there are a bunch if you haven't figured it out. Uh, and when we see all that, some people in an effort to justify not wanting to have to, 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 uh, I'm, I'm having a senior moment here and I've lost the word I want. You have to forgive me. I'm, I'm getting old, I guess. Uh, in, in order not to have to conform oneself to, to what has been revealed, we'll pose that question, how can a good God, if there is a good God, or if God is good, let this evil in this world go on? Well, I don't want to get sidetracked, but just as a, as a piece of information for you, think about that. If God intrudes on the evil of the world, how does he have to do it? Well, I mean, where did the evil come from? From the devil through you and me, all of us. So the only way he can take care of it is if he imposes himself on us and takes away our free will. How many of you want that done? See, the testing the people that say, how can a good God? How many want their free will taken away? None. We want our free will. In other words, we want our cake and eat it too. We want a nice world where everything works really easily, goes along smoothly without hitch. And we can eat, drink, and be merry and never die. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. And so in answer to the question, how can a good God? Well, a good God did, but he did it his way. And it's called the incarnation. And we have to accept that. Otherwise, we just go on making it up as we go along. I hadn't planned to do this, but in discussion with Father Mark, I might at some point in time do a lesson on how the creation story in Genesis warns us against idolatry. That is creating God in our own image, since that's been such an important part of this discussion. And it's so easy for us to create God in our own image. So the incarnation is the answer to the issue of God's justice, and it ends the separation of God and man. Now I'll start with two quotes, one from the liturgy, well, both from the liturgy, really. But one is the antiphon for the gospel canticles of verse Vespers and Matins on the first Sunday after Nativity. It's my, one of my favorite antiphons. I, I think this sums it all up. While all were in quiet silence, and that night was in the midst of her swift course, thine almighty word, O Lord, leapt down out of thy royal throne. And add to that the beginning of the prologue of St. John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what do we say? Thanks be to God. That sums it up. There is no more separation when that occurs. However, we are expected to respond to that action. So it's God's action and our response. The Blessed Virgin is the classic example of this. She responds. And God waits for her to respond. 
So our response is important. We can say we believe that and do nothing about it as if we don't believe. It's called functional atheism. Act as if God doesn't exist even though we believe he does. So we live as if he doesn't exist and we don't care. All right, think about the human life. The human lifespan. So what is it? Think about it in the beginning. Conception, womb, birth, infancy, childhood, adulthood. Now think about it. adulthood. There's no death. <laughs> so adulthood, it extends into eternity in a relationship with God. And then the fall occurs. And what do we have? Conception, womb, infancy, childhood, adulthood, death, and life after death. And it's separated from eternity. So even all those things that happen are separated from eternity. And today in the world we live in, the people in the world who don't want Christianity or any kind of real religion that's not a construction of their own imaginations will say that the human lifespan is this, birth, infancy, childhood, adulthood, death. That's it. No eternity, nothing before, nothing after. So many people believe, and so you'll, you'll be confronted with this frequently, many people believe that we don't become human until we draw our first breath of air. Remember years ago, and this has been going on a long time, back in the 80s after I got out of seminary, I watched a TV show one night and it had Patrick Duffy in it, you know, from Dallas. Uh, and I don't remember what it was. It was something about a dysfunctional family. And he was trying to console this son who was struggling for identity. And so in a moment of trying to comfort his son, he said, I have been your father since the day you were born. And even then I wanted to rise up and say, you got it all wrong. He's his father from the day he was conceived. But that's our world. And it has it all wrong. And it loses, not only does it not only understand what it means to be human, but it loses the context of eternity and relationship with God. Everything is terribly incomplete uh, and defective. And we can do nothing. Only God can do it. All we can do is cry out, Lord, have mercy. What do we do in the liturgy? <laughs> How many times do we do this? You know, someone said to me one time, I think it was Father Chad Hatfield, all you need to know when you become Orthodox is how to make the sign of the cross and say, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> no, get those two things and you got it. 40 so, 40 times, yeah. Well, yeah, I asked Bishop Basil one day, I said, how do you count 40, Lord, have mercy? So I don't remember what his answer was because I, I was so overwhelmed by the prospect of it. Because uh, I would be up there going one, two, three. <laughs> I can't remember things like this. Uh, never could remember things like this. That's why I was never good at math. Uh, but God does initiate the restoration. God responds to the pleas of humanity throughout history. Lord, have mercy. I had to, today, where you were talking about lamenting our sins and stuff, I, I was, the sins of the whole world, I, I, I was thinking of, of several things. One is St. Siloan's uh, Adam's lament. You should read that. It's a lament for the fallen state of creation. It's powerful. You can get it online. It comes up. Adam's lament by St. Siloam the Athenite. And the other is, and this is a part of the, the way the church uses this in the Western Rite, the last three days of Holy Week in, in, in the offices of Tenebrae, 
You know what the first lesson is? Lamentations. And it, it and it's although it speaks of lamenting the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, in fact, it is a quality of lamenting the fall of man from paradise. Read it with that context. You'll be astounded at what it says. I'm going to get ahead of myself, but that's because the church is trying to tell us, wake up. This is not just about this universe and this world. It's far beyond that. And our existence goes back to the beginning and stems out of it. So God does initiate restoration. God does something to this world because he is a good God. And it's called the incarnation. It's also called redemption, salvation. And in the second century, a phrase was used or word was used, recapitulation, a reordering of everything. You know, when you think of the New Testament, don't think of another testament. There's the Old Testament, which they cast aside in the New Testament. It means renew. The renewed, restored covenant. The covenant of the beginning is restored, is brought to completion. That's what it means to be by new. It seems new. It's new to us when we enter into it, but it's not new. It's been around a while. We think it's new. And so recapitulation, everything is reordered. And God becomes man. He becomes humanity. And by the way, if the, if the geneticists are correct uh, and the male determines the gender of a child in conception, then the maleness of Christ is absolutely critical because God himself chose it because there was no man in the conception of Christ, no male. So it's not like it's accidental and, and the Christ figure could be male or female, but all are re represented there. This is humanity, just like Adam. Anyway, sorry about that digression. <laughs> he becomes man while remaining God. It's his two natures we call it in the church. His, his nature of being fully God and fully man. Like us in every way, yet without sin. Why? Because sin is not a quality of normal humanity. It's a quality of the fall. Humanity before sin had no sin. And Christ is humanity before the fall. Perfect humanity. And he unites himself with his deity, his divine life, with every aspect of the human existence. The conception. When is the conception of Christ celebrated? March 21st. Exactly nine months before December 25th or March 25th, isn't it? I'm sorry, nine months before December 25th. The church commemorates the, the conception of, of Christ at the Annunciation. And then life in the womb. God unites himself to life in the womb. The story of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary going to her cousin Elizabeth to confirm what is happening. And Elizabeth sees her, and the child in Elizabeth's womb jumps, and she calls that which is in Mary's womb, my Lord, and calls her mother of my Lord. Now, Lord and God in Jewish usages are synonymous. So this is the first real example, a biblical example of mother of God. Luke 2. So in the womb, that which is in the womb is God incarnate. God and man. And then there's the birth, the nativity, Christmas. 
Christmas is not the celebration of the incarnation. It's the celebration of the manifestation of the incarnation in the birth of God-man. That's what it is. Childhood, Luke 2, the story, that one story of Jesus' childhood where he's lost in the temple. So God incarnate is in the childhood. Now, I say that because in the early centuries, there were people who were trying to determine when Jesus actually became God. And so when since St. Mark starts his gospel with the ministry of Jesus, some people said, well, it was at his baptism. That's called adoptionism, by the way. It's a heresy that's been condemned from the early church because it leads us astray and takes us away from the encounter with God. The only encounter with God is when we understand God incarnate. And so you have the birth and the childhood. And then you have the adulthood, which is really culminated in his, in his, his death and his passion. Uh, but it assumes that there was an adulthood because he gets to a roughly the age of 30. So he had to have an adulthood. And then there is his death. He enters into death. He truly dies. In the early church, they, there were people who said he didn't really die because God can't die. And therefore, the God-man can't die, so he had to only have appeared or seemed to have died. It's he called docetism, to seem to have done. And yet the church said, no, God entered into death. Because humans, because of the fall, have entered into death. <clears throat> so God enters into death. He truly dies. And hence, when crucifixes were first established, it was imperative, and it was it was even said in early canon law that Christ must be in repose on the cross if his body is on the cross. That is, in the dead position, not as you see in some modern churches where he's in agony, but in death. So it's, it's got his head is because he enters into death. His agony is still this side of death. God enters into death. And takes his presence there. And God cannot really die. So it's his humanity and the God-man who goes into death. But they're one. And so the divinity goes there and penetrates that separation with its very being. That place, by the way, was called Hades. Hades, the place where the dead went. And it was also called the bosom of Abraham for the faithful. Not hell. Well, it got translated hell. And the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. He descended into Hades. And in the Episcopal Church, they changed the Apostles' Creed and they said into the, they, he descended to the dead, which is actually a, one of the few decent changes that they made. Um, but it used to be among many of the non-Orthodox churches, non-Western Rite Orthodox churches that used uh, the Apostles' Creed, there used to be a little rubric in there that said, if you have a conscience problem, you do not have to state this line. <laughs> or it was taken out altogether because they misunderstood what it meant by hell. The abode of the dead. He went to the dead. He truly died. He took divinity into the very experience of death, and therefore it is no longer a separation from God for those who believe it. Now, it was three days, though, no? Yeah, but still, he descended to the dead. Okay. He went there. And, and when he's God, it's 
it's irrelevant really three days in a sense. And of course the debate is, was it on the third day or was it three days? Depends on which gospels you're reading. You know, we, we can bog down by those things. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Yeah, in First Peter three nineteen, it said he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That is, people ask the question, well, now, you say Jesus is a savior. What about all the people who came before him who never had a chance to hear about it? That's an excuse not to believe. Uh, rather than, I don't think it's a genuine question most of the time. But, however, Christ preached, apparently that question was asked in the first century because that's why this is in the first Petron epistle. He went to the boat, the boat of the dead and preached to the spirits. He appeared to the, and the whole message of the gospel was proclaimed. They can choose at that moment to believe this or not. Everybody before. Because this is God appearing here. This is God redeeming, not just some good old boy from Palestine. You know? So that applies to those that died prior to Jesus going down. Yes. Because the gospel wasn't brought to them, or Jesus incarnate was not brought to them. Right. So would that same thing apply to <coughs> that Christ hasn't, the gospel hasn't appeared to yet, like in some God-forsaken <coughs> land? I don't know, I shouldn't say that, but well, world. Because everything is timeless, you know? Yeah. And, and so that's always something that it, you get bogged down on a lot of times with atheists. So am I going to hell? So am I going to hell? And I'm like, no, you, you get to choose. It's always my response. But then it's always, you always are held accountable to what you know. And of course, if you've never had exposure to the gospel, you're not necessarily accountable. But then if God's appearing to you in the span of time, it's timeless. He's doing that now. Like he's saying right now, right now he's being born. Right now he's going to cross. Right now he's dying. Right now he's descending to hell. Everything is timeless. So right now he's also appearing to those Perhaps. I mean, I'm posing as well. You're, you're trying. You, perhaps you're trying to find an answer that that justifies God in a sense. But God is going to be merciful to all people, even those who don't hear the gospel. Well, yeah, and yeah. that's that's yeah. what I that's what I get at. Yeah. Like, you know, a Hindu. You know, yeah. he, he passes. So are they going to hell? Well, I think no. I think on the other side of the veil, they'll get a chance to accept him or not. And then the whole idea of through Christ, everyone goes to heaven. You still. In a sense, it's kind of like the same. Well, no, I'm getting off track. <laughs> I know what you, you're trying to say. So, when when you say God is timeless, He's timeless in the Eucharist. Is, is He then also timeless in hell? Yeah. So, if somebody goes to hell, is He still there for them? That's kind of the question. Everybody will be given the chance to 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 know, but a lot of people have. Um, and just refuse. St. Paul in Romans says that, that the, the, the Jew who has the law will be judged by the law, and the Gentile who has not the law, uh, but who lives the principles of the law, lives as if the law is innate within him. Remember, there's a residue of the good in all of us. So Christ recognizes this. So, and, and God is merciful. So everybody's going to have a fair opportunity to respond to this, to understand it, and see it, and respond to it. And so it's not, it's not like whenever we say the limitations of our words suggest that, that there are going to be people out there who are condemned because they didn't respond to Christ if they never heard it. They will. C.S. Lewis said, we know, and this is a key line for understanding Christianity, we know that no one can be saved except through Christ because he said that. We do not know whom Christ will save. Yeah. We don't know 
when he's going to. Yeah. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean we don't hold to the uniqueness of the gospel. It just means that we have to leave God to be the savior. So we have an obligation on the one hand to tell the world about Christ because this is God revealed. And at the other hand, we leave salvation up to God. There's your antinomy. Two together. Are you asking me what about you can't repent? I've heard that you can't repent once you're dead. Like in the story where this family Lazarus, he's crying out for another hand. I don't know. I've heard an explanation about it that was like basically like they can't help the rich man because he's already dead. He can't repent. Well, yeah, technically outside repentance is 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 accomplished in the chronological aspect of time. So it's said that angels, the fallen angels could not repent because they were only in eternity and not in chronological time, like whereas we're both. Now, that's a good point though, a good question to ask. Uh, what, about, um, what about repentance after death? I don't know. So I can't answer that one. So the, the devil or what have you, whatever you want to call them, they're stuck because they're they made their choice in front of eternity and they're not going to have the chronological uh advantage that mankind has to something like that i mean you know satan's gonna say okay i was just kidding all along i want to <laughs> get on the right side and it's a little late according but, to the teaching of the church satan is and his minions never <clears throat> repent and never can repent I asked Bishop Basil that question, and he said that the angels, God created everything good. The angels are good, they're rebelling, and they have rebelled. So it's all three. But we can't we can't conceptualize that because it's out of time. So he created them good, they're good, they are an act of rebelling, and they've already rebelled in past tense. Good, rebelling, and rebelled. And that was this. And I, I forget where it's written, but in the New Testament said that we will judge the angels. Yeah. I just read that the angels are, are incorporeal beings, and so they don't have an advantage being able to repent because they're incorporeal. They're not. They don't have a body. I mean, they're not uh, part of the incarnation. They were part of the bodily spirits of heaven, and they were incorporeal and repented, and therefore because. They don't really fall under our type of being. They cannot. Well, they, they are a different kind of being. They're part of the created order, but they're a different aspect of created order. So maybe even the repentance for the angels doesn't even apply. Uh, it's a concept that doesn't even apply. Uh, yeah. All the deep questions, they keep coming. <laughs> Maybe some sort of reality, who knows? But um, I don't know. You know, I have two literary examples of where it seems that in the afterlife we kind of just reach the end of who we were and are becoming. Uh, so with C.S. Lewis, you brought him up earlier. 
we have the dwarves in sort of the Narnia paradise. And every, you know, Lucy, who's always got this great heart, she's like, Aslan, can't you do anything to the dwarves? Here they are in paradise, and they're miserable. Because the dwarves were sitting in paradise, but they felt like they were in a barn that was dirty and disgusting and stinky, and they were just fighting. But through the whole book before they died, they were all dead. The dwarves are for the dwarves, right? They were for themselves. And so here they are in paradise, and they're miserable. And then Lucy says, Aslan, do something. So Aslan says, well, I can, but, you know, they've kind of already decided. And so... He gives them like delicious food and wine, and the dwarves, thinking they're in the bar, grab the wine and grab the food, and they're like, oh, this is disgusting. This is like fodder, and oh, this is like dirty, you know, donkey water or whatever. <laughs> Another story is uh, Dostoevsky, and he talks about this woman who goes to hell because she was just this horrible, selfish, just awful woman to everybody. She goes to hell. And then she like begs this angel, hey, can, come on, can you give me another chance? Is there anything you can do? And the angel's like, okay. Tell you what, she said, oh, she says, she says, one time, one time I gave an onion to somebody. That was like her good word, right? One time I gave an onion. So the angel's like, okay, so tell you what, here's an onion. I'm gonna fly down. This is illustrated, by the way. Don't be this too literally. But you know, well, I'm gonna fly down with this onion, grab onto the onion, and uh, I'll pull you up into heaven. And she's like, okay. So the angel comes down with the onion, and then the lady grabs the onion and starts pulling her up. And then all these other people, all these other sinners, are grabbing the woman because they wanted to go up too. And she started kicking them. She didn't want them <laughs> chance to go up. <laughs> and so, in both of these illustrations, it seems like, and I, I agree, I don't know the answer about like post-death repentance, but in these illustrations that are literary, you know, there seems to be this idea that you know we kind of become the thing we are to become. And I don't know. I don't know if, uh, you know, again, this isn't theological, but it sure does illustrate, like, gosh, we better get our house in order now, <laughs> you know, because I don't want to become that person, you know, who's missing that chance, you know. Well, we, so well, I think that may be the more significant point. If it's correct, we, 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 when we die, we, we step outside of chronological time, and so our state becomes permanent, in a sense. Uh, so, yeah, we don't want to... Uh, I don't want this sinful state to be permanent. So I've got an opportunity to repent now, and that's why repentance is such a... Remember what I said to you in the beginning, the, the, the imposition of the fall was not, was not imposed on Adam until he didn't repent of his actions. And it simply means to, to turn back. It's not like... You know, we... It's... What Adam did was, it's not like he did something bad, or he did a, you know, that goes back to the whole justice thing. God needs to punish somebody. Uh, Adam separated, by his bad choice, separated himself from God and from the life that God wanted for him. And when he had an opportunity to come back, he didn't do it. He blamed Eve and God. And in the parable of the prodigal son, which is used in the Eastern Rite at the first Sunday in Lent, isn't it? Um, the, the son, the father lets the son go, and the son has to come back on his own will. And, and he's willing to come back as humbly as possible just because he wants restoration. So he says, you know, my, the servants in my father's house eat better than I do. I'd rather be a servant in my father's house than, than, than to continue like this. Really, that's, that's, it's a model of repentance. What do we want? Uh, and so we're here in this life to repent, and that's what we need to do. It's a part of our spiritual discipline. It is a part of our participation in the restoration of paradise to our condition. Uh, 
Uh, and there are people outside the faith, because there is a residue of the good and the prior fall, there are people outside the faith who somehow find ways uh, to be similar to some of this. And God understands that in their circumstances, and they will be handled accordingly. So, you know, it's, I mentioned, I mentioned in, a, in answering a question one a couple of weeks ago that there was a, one of the things that converted me was that uh, I went to a rock concert and I was searching for something. I didn't know what it was, but uh, God seemed to get me in rock concerts. So the, the two, two aspects of my I was really orthodox before I was orthodox. That is, I had my hair back in a long ponytail like the monks. You know? <laughs> so, so anyway, I went to a rock concert, and, and between the bands, uh, there was this guy that had been a former, uh, he had, his, his hair was long in a ponytail just like mine, and he had been a former drug user in Wichita Falls who had a conversion experience and, and, and stopped all of that. And so between bands, he was singing about Jesus, uh, and singing Christian songs, and he was really good. But what got me was that he, radiate, he radiated something that I wanted, and I had no clue what it was, but I wanted it. I just thought, if that's what I'm looking for, then I want what he has. Uh, and I, I think about him often, even pray for him, because I don't know what happened to a lot of people in those days, became Christian and then fell by the wayside, you know. It's not just a stage, it's a lifestyle. And it's a lifetime stretching into eternity. Uh, so there are people out there for whom that may be as far as they get, but that's quite a ways compared to people who have heard the story and don't respond or ignore it or treat it as in, indifference. So here's the thing, we have been exposed to it. So we have no excuses. <laughs> a Buddhist in the Middle East, I mean, in Far East, has plenty of excuses. Hopefully he doesn't have any excuses, but from our perspective, he would have an excuse. We don't. We've heard this story. So what, what are we doing about it? Remember something about all of this. Remember... The concept of universality. Each one of us represents all of creation, and all of creation is represented in each one of us. So when Christ becomes human and goes through all of these experiences, not only is he yoking divinity with it, but he's yoking humanity with divinity. So in all of these circumstances, humanity is being exalted or re-exalted, if you will, brought back to its, or at least potentially to its state that it was in paradise. Human existence is altered in the effects of the incarnation by the union of the divine and the human. It might be said to be to be a beginning of the restoration of creation. That's why St. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is called the second Adam. So the whole thing has been brought back to this point. And the divine man uh, transforms everything. And that's not all. So not only does he go to death, but then he's resurrected. Since God can't die, so it can't hold death can't hold God. 
So there is the resurrection, the inevitable consequence of what happened. Remember, for those of you who read the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan knew the, the what was it, the, 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 the magic from before time. He knew what would happen if they put him to death. Death would be defeated. And the witch didn't know that. And so there is the resurrection. And he brings with him all of the resurrected. If, if, if you look at an icon of the resurrection, I, I love the icons of the resurrection. Uh, if you look at it carefully, there are all these people gathered around and Christ is in there. And below him are two things lying, usually like this, their doors, the gates of hell. Broken down by Christ. And he's reaching out and Adam and Eve are coming out of Hades into his presence with crowns on their heads. That's what we celebrate. That's why when we do the Easter sermon of St. John Chrysostom, uh, uh, that's powerful, powerful statement. And so he brings everyone out and gives everyone the chance for new life. But again, no one will have it imposed on him. We must choose. We have the opportunity to begin that journey now in this life. Not later, yes. St. John, John the Baptist? That's right. Okay, I don't, I've not heard that, so I can't comment on that. Yeah, without saying. Okay. Eastern right, yeah. Well, I can't speak to that one, I'm sorry. <laughs> so. Well, it seems that anyone really who would, uh, who would go to the abode of the dead, uh, and all of us do when we die, would be a witness to the, what we learned. Uh, remember, the, we, we all go into the experience of death, but for, for those, who have, those of us who have begun the journey into eternity, into Christ, into God incarnate, uh, it is a place in which we encounter God, even there, because there's nowhere where he is not. And so it's hell for, or a place of torment for those who have not and have nothing in them that even wants it. So there's a difference. The same place can be two different ways. It's sort of like being in our society. <laughs> this can be paradise for us, just living the Christian faith. For people in the world, this can be the worst hell that could ever have happened to anybody. And that's why drugs and abuse and all kinds of things are going on now, especially in American society. So <clears throat> this is hell for many people. If you've ever been through a hard time, even a hard time can be hell, <laughs> you know, even with Christ in, on your side, so, so to speak. Yes, ma'am. Ability to do that for 
that's a quality of universality. And one of the things we want to do in the course of the long term of these classes mm -hmm. is to talk about the notion of the priesthood of all, uh, because that's that answers what you're saying. Yes, we have we have a function to priesthood, each of us. And it is related to the concept of universality, where each one of us represents all of creation, all of creation, not just right now, but past, present and future. That's why we pray for all these people. That's our work. So when you're getting bored in church and you're going through the list and you're going, oh, God, I just want to get out of here. <laughs> this is our work. This is what we were put on this earth to do. And, and to do it is to begin to participate in paradise. And so, yes, there are other people whose life in the future depends on, on our prayers. It was intended to be that way, all of us together. I'm dependent on your prayers. However independent, I may try to pass myself off as being. We all are. There are people who haven't even come into this world yet who are dependent upon our prayers. And there are people who are long gone who are dependent upon our prayers. I pray all the time from our parents, my brother, our grandparents and ancestors. I don't even know my ancestors beyond my grandfathers and grandmothers but they need my prayers. I don't intend to let them go down. It's our duty. And that's a participation in paradise. Wait a minute, you were first. Yeah. Um, hey, uh, building on what Lois said, it's occurred to me that, and I, I, I always think of one person that I knew in particular. I don't know that when he died, he had found Jesus, but I felt like knowing this person and our interactions, Greg and I, interacting with him led us forward on our journey and in a way I feel like God looks at that and says okay well you know you you help someone you don't even know you don't know it but I used you to help someone and then and then like you said the universality is that we pray for that person like well he he helped us long he didn't know it but he he helped us or you know uh, someone that you know a young person that dies that you know, maybe his death or just him knowing him has contributed to someone else's salvation. We must do our duty regardless of what we see and experience. And our prayers in those circumstances are beyond our sight and our experience. We may be surprised when we get on the other side of death to find out how effective our prayers really were. When people come up to us and maybe say, hopefully say, your prayers saved me. So we just don't know. We have to do our duty. But in our fallen nature, we say, well, I can't envision that. And I can't imagine it. It doesn't make sense to me logically. Therefore, I'm not going to believe it. And I'm not going to do it. Well, <laughs> that's fine. Except let's don't portray ourselves or waste time portraying ourselves that we're Christians when we're not willing to do those things. Stay home. There are football games. They start early. <laughs> the golfers are out. You know, go play golf. I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious. There are better things to do if we don't believe this. And if we do believe this, there is nothing else to do but this. Anyway, so not only did he res was he resurrected, but he ascended into heaven, taking humanity up into the divine presence. So we cannot say that where is God? The question is not where is God as if he's somehow at 
fault and it's his fault, but we need to look inside what's in us that's keeping us from seeing and understanding. That's what we need to do. We're the problem. You know, my problems in life are not the world out there or the culture or the president or the Congress or all of you or any of you. <laughs> my problems are right here. I'm the one who stands in the way of God. So I just have to live with that. But that's the goodness. If I can say mea culpa, you see, then I've begun the journey of getting it right. And the whole of creation is affected by that. The whole of creation. All because of the incarnation and the ascension. So what do we do? First and foremost, we got to believe this crazy story of God becoming incarnate. We have to believe it. And I want to tell you, I'm really surprised at the number of people I find who claim to be Christian, who do not know that Jesus Christ is true God and true man and the, and the savior of the world and the only way to salvation. You'd be surprised how many people don't know that, who call themselves Christians. That's surprising because it's essential to being Christian. Well, consider this. If he's not, and he said he was the only way to salvation, he is God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He said, the Father and I are one. If that's not true, then he's either misguided, in which case, why would we ever believe anything he has to say or is attributed to? Or he's a deceiver. In fact, Jewish authorities in the first century actually said, called him that deceiver. <laughs> that he's not right. And the way we wouldn't believe him then either. If I told you I was God incarnate, no one came to God except might be, you, you laugh. My, my wife especially would laugh. She'd warn you. Uh, she, she'd warn you to look out. Uh, so he says this. So he, he, he was a deceiver, in which case, why would we pay attention? Or he was terribly misguided, uh, just suffering from delusions of grandeur. Uh, we would say, you have some psychological issues going on here. Why would we take any of it serious? People say all the time, well, he was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. Well, what? You know, what I find is that most of what Christ said, I think I've said this before in one of these classes, most of what Christ said, said was not that unique. You can find versions of it in Judaism. What he said was very Jewish. But what was unique was what he said about himself. I and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father but by me. We have to face that. And he asked the question, who do you say that I am? And every one of us has to answer that question. And there's only one right answer. Everything else, we just go on about our business, continue on in the fall, and continue the fall. And all of creation out there is waiting for us. All of creation awaits for the exaltation of the sons of God who understand God incarnate. So we have to believe it first and foremost. And secondly, we have to strive to live it. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He stands at the door and knocks. I used to read that and imagine he was there breaking the doors down to get to me. But no, he's standing at the door and knocking. 
And, and he wants me to open the doors and allow him in. Remember the Protestant evangelists, you say, oh, ask Jesus into your heart. Well, it's true. Open the doors. So we have to respond to it. In orthodoxy, we call that our work. Now, it's really un mis mis it's unfortunate that much American Christian society does not understand what we mean when we say faith and works. Faith and works are two sides of the same thing. There is no faith without works. Uh, so we conform our actions and thoughts and remove all false notions. And then we live to be reunited with God. Listen to the words that we use in the church to describe our, our lives, lives in Christ. Regeneration, illumination, deification. You get the point? That's what we're trying to attain uh, by opening ourselves to the divine life that has become incarnate. He's already shown that he wants to come to that level with us. That leads to change within us, participated in it now. See, it's not down the end when we die and Jesus comes back and all of paradise. That's a part of it, but it starts now. The kingdom of God is within you, he said. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. Yes. So, in other words, creation is being recreated in the incarnation, beginning with God and joining himself, beginning with God joining himself to creation and revealing himself through and in it. We now can respond and assume our proper place in that recreation. And that is our goal and what we are trying to attain. So we've had the questions now, so I guess I won't open the floor for any more questions. <laughs> We had them out of sequence. It's a good thing I'm. It's a good thing I'm sort of spontaneous. Uh, we won't have class next week because of the Thanksgiving weekend. And whenever I'm back up, my subject will be Revelation, the recreation of, of creation. I mean, the book from the book of Revelation, because the last the antiphon, the last two chapters of Revelation, sort of summarize all of this in a sort of mystical way. So if you want to jump ahead and read Gen Revelation 21 and 22, please do. Uh, but we'll talk. Don't, and don't give me questions to explain before the class. Uh, <laughs> wait till we're done. Anyway, thank you.